So I can do all this work without necessarily having to bother them about it. I can do it by interacting with the floor and the carpet and the furnace and the radiators and the dogs, and I can start to grow up a little bit that way. So by the time I'm relating to actual real people, maybe I've, I've done some maturing before I open my mouth. Welcome everybody to the podcast, Relationships. Let's talk about it. I'm Prebo Toplitsky. I'm a psychotherapist specializing in relationship issues. Everybody's got one. Partners, family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, relationships. Let's talk about it. everybody to this episode of Zen and the Art of Relating. And I have a conversation with Jonathan Flom. Jonathan is very dear to me. I've known him for over 10 years now. And Jonathan is a Zen priest at Great Tree Zen Temple in Asheville, North Carolina. And he is also the caretaker of Asheville Tiny Temple. And he's also been a milkman for about 10 years. And I'm talking about the old-fashioned milkman, home delivery. So I let Jonathan take the lead on talking about Zen and the art of relating to things, to objects, our environment, and our relationships with people. And I love how he emphasizes that waking us up, that everything deserves our attention. And to me, Jonathan is Zen in daily life. He is not hiding away in a monastery. He has a wife, two teenagers, and dogs, which he has a story or two to tell about. And you can learn more about his work at AshevilleTinyTemple.org. Okay, everybody, here we go. Zen and the art of relating with my man, Jonathan. Let's talk about it. Prepo. <laughs> yeah, I've been wanting to do this for a while. This is going to be sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. You've got so much gold and juice just around uh, being yourself of who you are and the learnings that you've done in our relationship over the years. But I love that you're going to be bring this perspective of Zen and the art of relating. Mm. So I get to hear some of your wisdom what you've learned and what you've culminated inside your own life and your own practice as a Zen monk in the art of relating to many different things. Yeah. So wherever you want to go with it, brother. Well, thanks, Prepo. It's, it's, a, it's such a pleasure to be here and, and to, to learn from you about relationships. And, and I thought it'd be interesting to start with something very simple in, the, I'll, I'll say, a little bit about Zen practice, and then I'm going to get into milkman practice because mm-hmm. I also have worked as a milkman for maybe 10 years. So the thing about Zen practice is we start with relating to very small things, like relating to um, how to sweep the floor, so the way we relate to a broom. 
that when we store a broom, for example, we don't want to store it on its bristles because we want to take care of its bristles because that's what we're going to use. So we want to hang the broom up so the bristles are off the ground. Or if we're not hanging the broom up right away, we want to turn it over and lean it on its handles so its bristles are up so we continue to preserve the broom and take care of the broom. If we're getting ready to um, take care of the altar in the meditation hall in the zendo, we want to make sure the flowers are fresh, that we have nice, clean water for the flowers. The flowers are being taken care of. The Buddha is in the center of the altar. The Buddha has been dusted and clean. The incense bowl is clean. When we offer incense and place a stick incense in the powdered incense bowl, we want to put the incense directly in the center of the bowl, directly straight, directly in line with the Buddha's nose. Mm. You say, why are all of those things important? Why, when we sit in the meditation cushion, I remember when I first started practicing Zen, going into a meditation hall and walking in and bowing in the room, then going to your cushion, to your seat where you're going to sit in meditation, bowing to your cushion and turning around again and bowing to the room before you sit down. Well, you're bowing to a cushion and no one's sitting there. There's nobody there. But you want to take care of the cushion. You want to honor the space you're going to be in. It's the same way with eating and with, with your eating bowls and eating in a certain way and a certain routine. And all of this is about establishing a relationship with your environment. Realize you're, you're in relation to all of these things. All of these things matter where all of these things are placed. It's almost like a cherishing, you know, with that word that we don't use so much. Mm. You know, to cherish the things around us and, and our environment with some reverence. Absolutely, you cherish them. And of course, in Zen practice, there's so much silence that you really take the time to do one thing at a time. Really pay attention when you get up from the table that you're pushing in your chair. I'm going to tell you just there's so much detail, but I'm going to tell you one detail one of the reasons I just fell in love with being in a session, which is a silent Zen retreat, and having a meal with a group. Which is what, 13 hours, how many hours a day? Yeah, like? it depends. I mean, some of them you can start at about 4.20 in the morning and go to 9.30 at night. Some of them are a little bit more relaxed, and the, the wake-up bell comes at 5.30, and you're doing your first Zazen period at 6 a.m., uh, I've I've been doing more of those where we can at least be in the zendo at six, but and go to nine thirty at night. So you're you know, many periods of sitting meditation, walking meditation, three silent meals, and a short work period in between, which is also in silence. But there's something that happens at the table that I took directly to why I wanted to be a milkman, which is at the end of the meal. And when you're, you've used your bowls, your bowls are wrapped up in your wrapping cloth and, and you're now cleaning the table together. So let's say there's five people on each side of a table and two people on the, on the ends and the teacher would be on, on one end. 
you you have a, a long um let's say almost a, a like a one by two wood block wrapped in a, a wet cloth that has a compartment to put the block inside so you have a it's kind of a it's so now you, it's sort of a clean dish rag that you've gotten wet that's a block you're using and it gets passed around and it, and if it starts with me i wipe my place silently pass it to the next person they wipe their place on and on and on the table gets wiped one place at a time and finally the student sitting next to it to the teacher out of respect wipes the teacher's place and sort of wipes the center and then that block is brought to the end of the table set aside and everything is done that way from the beginning of the meal to serving the food to bowing to each other to wiping the table so there's not a single crumb or a single drip there. And I want to make clear that this isn't done for some reason of perfectionism or because Zen people have a problem with obsessive compulsive disorder. We don't. And I heard a Zen teacher I really love and respect, Joan Halifax, talk about Zen is not about perfectionism, that perfectionism can be a bit aggressive. And I think that's very important. Back to the word cherish, to do things in a loving way, in a careful way, but it's not about urgency or perfectionism. It's about taking the time to do one thing at a time and, and to do it right. And that's somehow, magically, by taking care of that wiping cloth, by taking care of that block of wood, it brings the people at the table who are wiping the table closer together. In a very unspoken kind of way. It brings them into relation. We're taking care of the table together. You know, what just comes up for me around that was uh, a few years ago when we were together and you spilled some water on the table and the way that you cleaned up that spill was with such mindful attention and care. I was, I was mesmerized how much care you were taking. You weren't rushed. It wasn't like anxiety of like, Oh shit, I spilled this water. You just, you, you wiped it with such care and wiped it thoroughly and calmly and that just gave me an idea of like, man, Jonathan does so many of simple things in his life in such a Zen and careful way. Like to me, you're a walking Zen monk in real life. It's not like you, I don't think of you of that in the temple. I think of how you are in the world and how that shows up. I appreciate that, you know, very much. It's funny how it gets how the how it gets into you zen being not just one activity as one would become a great equestrian or a great baseball player or a surgeon but zen practice and zen training is about the simplest things cooking a meal wiping a table setting a table sweeping the floor mopping the floor just living together because that's what we do most of the time. Hmm. Most of our activities aren't very special. So when we talk about Zen, we talk about the everyday. 
if you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to tell you about my experience as a milkman a mm -hmm. little bit and how this really lit something up for me about how taking care of things, which is what the training is about. We don't generally talk about what's happening with people right away. We keep coming back to the things because it's easy. Those are easier to pin down. Human relationships are very subtle and require a lot of skill. So it's kind of hard to pin them down in, in, in words. You sort mm -hmm. of got to feel your way through it. As a milkman, I was really interested in taking care of the milk, just focusing on that, bringing that Zen practice to milk, making sure it was cold, making sure it got where it needed to go on time, making that my focus. When I did home delivery, I wanted those home delivery milk boxes to look like an altar. I wanted everything in there, the butter, the milk, the eggs, to be touching ice, to be cold but to make sure the carton of eggs didn't get wet. So I had to figure out how to make that happen. If we had bread, I had to make sure how the bread stayed fresh, but not soggy. These little simple things were real nice practices for me. And I had in my mind, because of course in whole milk delivery, when I delivered, I rarely saw people, but I thought when they come home and see this neatly arranged stuff that their milkman left for them, they'll know it was touched. They'll know that someone took time to do it. And they're going to feel some connection because I'm feeling connection to them right now. That was just part of my practice. I felt connection to them by the way I was handling their milk. And the fact that I was doing glass milk bottles hmm. and I had the exchange of I was giving them a full bottle and I had to be sure not to break it. And it was their responsibility for me when I went back to the dairy, I asked him to wash the bottle and return it to me neatly. And I noticed that when I gave them a bottle neatly, they gave it back to me neatly. And it was this exchange between us, a way to be human together without having to talk about it, put too much around it. It was just someone making an effort someone giving and receiving and someone giving and receiving back and continuing to recycle that energy of full bottle to empty bottle. When I started delivering to restaurants, it was the same thing. Now I was seeing people. So I now I had the opportunity to take care of the milk and also take care of the customer. And after a while, I noticed that the customer's wanted to talk a little bit and they were interested in me listening. So I'd listen. And that was a way to take care of the milk and take care of the customer. That's beautiful. It, like just doing that, just taking care creates a certain connection that you have with people that they have a reciprocity in that also. Because I remember you also telling me how you were surprised how people just wanted to open up and disclose to you. They felt there was a safety and trust. And I imagine just because of the care and, and the attention that you paid to just your work and the many things that you did, they, they took that personally in some way. Right. It's, it's interesting. Of course, a business person working in their business, working in their restaurant or coffee shop, it's very precious to them. 
very personal. I didn't work with chain restaurants. I worked with independent owners. So it was precious. And it was a great relief to have someone taking care of their milk. You'd be surprised. But there's so much for us to do as human beings. If you have another human being enter your life and take care of even the simplest thing, like milk or butter, and saying, I'm going to make sure this is always at 36 degrees, and I'm going to make sure the oldest date is always in front. So now when you come into your restaurant and you're thinking about 100 things, you only have to think about 99. You never have to think about the milk because I'll be in here twice a week rotating it and taking care of. Just forget about it. And you're in some subtle way, that gave people a signal, hey, the milkman cares about me. He cares about my milk like it's his own milk. So maybe um, this is someone who's interested in listening. He's listening to the milk. Maybe he can listen to me a little bit. And very subtly, these relationships can, can happen. One of the things that both surprised me and made me trust the importance of paying attention just to every little thing to see where it leads is that one of the coffee shops that I served, there was somebody sitting at the table every day when I went who was an artist, made really interesting artwork, very like almost in the style of Russian Orthodox icons. He had developed this very religious style, painting different things, drawing different things. And he himself had a very kind of Russian Orthodox look, a very long white beard, very fascinating kind of human being. So when I was doing my work out of the corner of my eye, I enjoyed in that coffee shop, watching him do his work. And I, at, at a certain point down the line, I realized he was selling some of the things he was making. So I bought one and bought another here and there. And we began to have a relationship. And soon he started to hold the door for me when I came in with the milk and he would help me and we'd visit and talk. And eventually I started to pay more attention and realized, surmised that he was homeless and he was in the shop all day working because that's, that's where he had to go. And as it was getting close to winter and I was taking care of the shop and taking care of the milk, it got on my mind that I wonder what he needs. And it, it wasn't, it was just accidental. It just happened because I was there taking care of the milk and this human being happened to be in my purview that the relationship just naturally occurred because I was the milkman for the shop. And I remember finally asking him one day, what do you need? And he looked down at his feet and I looked down. He had flip-flops on. It was getting colder out. He said, you know, I think I can probably use a pair of shoes pretty soon. I said, how about socks? He said, socks would be nice. So got him. He said, how about some eggs? <laughs> how about <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we got him socks and shoes. And it just continued like that. He eventually said, you know, with the way it's going, sleeping outside... I think I'd like a horse blanket. 
to stay warm. I said, yeah, but horses, they have all that fur. The blankets don't really go all the way around. I get it, but what about a sleeping bag? He said, yeah, sleeping bag. And it went from there, and the more we got into it, the more I realized he he wasn't going to stay in a homeless shelter. It wasn't his thing. He wasn't going to ask for help from a social worker. It wasn't his thing. He was afraid of getting his art supplies stolen, which he worked very hard for, so he was very private. So slowly but surely, I got interested, and eventually I said, besides the sleeping bag and the socks and the shoes and the warmer clothes, what about an apartment? Do you think you'd want an apartment? He said, yeah, I think so. And how many years was it since he slept in the... Twelve for twelve years he had he had been out there. I mean, he's wow. an older guy, and very very resourceful, amazingly resourceful, amazingly smart, but live in a really different way. But guess what? It just became part of the milk thing. It was like I gotta go do the milk, and I gotta go check on this person who's now become my friend. And we're going to figure out how to get him an apartment. And while we're figuring it out, and it's winter time, and he's older, we got to put him up in a motel. So we got to find the motel for him, and we got to find some more money because I'm I only have so much money to put him up. So we did a GoFundMe to get more money, and the coffee shop helped, and everybody just wanted to help. And it just started around taking care of the milk and the milk crates and the truck and people were all in the middle of that and in a very natural way you think okay i'm going to keep the milk cold during the day and i'm going to make sure this friend is kept warm at night and it just becomes part of the job that's zen practice just take care of of what's in front of you wow that's a beautiful story are you still in contact with him now I am, and it's been three years. And here's the amazing thing. You know, so many people say, well, you know, with, with homeless people, if you give it an apartment and they have this, they have that, they're not going to maintain it, they're not going to do it. So one of the things, I, I had to pull a lot of strings and call in a lot of favors and go through things to get the apartment that he got. It's a really, it's a, it's a very nice spot, subsidized housing. I met a wonderful woman who was the manager of that apartment. And, you know, we had a very nice thing going. And one of the things that the, one of the reasons you realize why homeless people have such a hard time getting a place to live, all the paperwork involved. One of the things I had to do was guarantee that if for any reason he couldn't pay his rent, I would pay his rent. Mm. And, and and I had to sign something, and I also had to sign that I'm giving him X amount of dollars every month so he has the money to be there. I haven't been giving him money since he first got in there. And guess what? I've never had to pay his rent. Wow. I just have to go by at the beginning of each year, which I just did a few weeks ago, and sign that I'll continue to be his guarantor if anything happens. But nothing has. He's managed it. He continues to sell uh, his art. He's a model tenant. When I went in there, one of his artworks was in the manager's office. He made her a painting. And he just needed some a little bit of care. Yeah. Just somebody to see him and, and say, 
what do you think you need right now? And to me, that's like it happened in such a simple way. But it was those to me are the natural miracles of starting to take care of just what's not thinking about what's on the news or the right. big things out there, but what's right in front right. of you. In, in your day. And not even uh, a thought process. I don't think that you talked about having a thought process, oh, I'm going to do something good for somebody right now. No, it was, just, it was just right in front of you. So how is that experience overlap or d- did that transition in any ways of how you related to other people in your life, like family and, and other friends? Certainly. I'll talk about my family a little bit being married for 25 years and, and having two teenagers and having a house that's almost 100 years old and having two dogs. So in, in most of my house, I have wood, wood floors, uh, old wood floors. They, they need to be redone, but they haven't been redone. So sweeping them, you, you, you have to sweep them a lot. Uh, or, you know, things get caught in there. So every morning I, I sweep the floors. And there's one room in our house where there's an area rug that my wife really likes. I've had issues with the rug over the years because it's hard to keep clean. And we have two dogs and one of them's a golden retriever. One of them's a shorthand dog. One of them's a golden retriever. So there's a lot of dog hair in there. And even if you vacuum it, it's very hard to get all the dog hair up. So for years, I really wanted to get rid of the rug and really lobbied my wife and everyone else. Can we just get rid of the rug because it's uh, so much hair and it's hard to keep clean? But no, the rug's comfortable and it makes the room nicer and softer and more cozy. And so it's been an interesting experience for me, again, being mindful of that perfectionism can be a, a form of aggression to not be aggressive in the way you take care of things but to try to find a way to take care of things and realize that everything has its place. It's not always about just getting rid of the things that are difficult to take care of, like the carpet and like the house. For a long time, I thought, well, maybe we can just move to a newer house, to a greenhouse, or, or build a little house, sell this one, and we'll just build a little smaller one so we can start over. But the kids love that house, and my wife loves that house. And over time, I realized, you know, even though it's such a pain in the neck, because there's so many things to take care of, the systems are old, some things leak, I have to have a, I have a bucket by the furnace for years and check it every morning and, and the hot water heater and this and that and the other thing and the way the laundry works. But eventually, those things started to make me grow a little bit, started to rub on me. And rather than me become aggressive with the furnace and the hot water heater and the sink next to the washer and dryer and the unlevelness of the yard, I just started to realize that these things were as important as I was, strange as that sounds. That for me to grow up and mature and lose my sense of entitlement about what kind of house I should have or my aggression about how modern and convenient my world can be, but isn't, I can start to appreciate the radiators in my house, the age of the furnace, that it's still working, 
that these very kind of analog pipes are still powering my house, still making it happen. I don't have to remove the radiators and bring them down to build more iron and metal and make and add to the big pile of, of stuff. My stuff's still working and it just needs some TLC. It needs some care, it needs, it needs some attention. So I started getting that relationship with the system of the house. And slowly but surely, I started realizing the dogs like to lay on the carpet. The kids like it. My wife likes it. What's your problem, Jonathan? Wake up to the reality of this carpet. It's a part of your life. Are you going to be at war with this thing? Or are you going to find a way to come and learn from it? So the vacuum wasn't doing it. Every once in a while, I'll rent one of those uh, water steam cleaner type things that really gets it going. But what I realized was that I can brush the dogs. I can also brush the carpet. Mm. So I can use a dog brush and like a good Zen monk, get down on my hands and knees as we do in washing a floor. And I can brush the carpet every morning and start fresh. I can sweep the floor brush the carpet, get the dog hair out of there, and the carpet's ready to go. So when I wake up in the morning and do that now, I'm in relationship with the carpet, I'm in relationship with the floor, and since I'm the first one up, which is a meditation habit, you start waking up early, it's just what it is, usually the first one to bed and the first one up, when the family wakes up to come into their day, everything in the house has been touched and been prepared and they can come into it and they don't really maybe they don't consciously notice it but things are in place for them and and that makes me feel good i've already thought of them for a couple of hours before they've woken up so it puts me in a certain kind of relation to them mm. rather than feel like i'm cleaning up after people yeah. i feel like i'm cleaning up before people mm. so they can come in and go about their day and be able to be in a space that's that's useful for them so i can do all this work without necessarily having to bother them about it i can do it by interacting with the floor and the carpet and the furnace and the radiators and the dogs and i can start to grow up a little bit that way so by the time i'm relating to actual real people Maybe I've, I've done some maturing before I open my mouth, you know? And, and I think that's what, that's what Zen is getting at, to that practice. So when we do interact, it really is like a bow. We really want to try to honor the other human being there. Do we always get it? No, but somehow the more we are gentle in mopping a floor, the easier it becomes to be gentle with talking to a person, you know? It's kind of like if you imagine 
the the people, young people or whatever, singing into their hair dryer like it's a microphone, or or dancing with with the broom mm. like like it's the prom date or something. It's it's a way to practice for when a, a person is there or a real microphone is there. You're kind of pretending, and Zen is a kind of playfulness, almost like a child's playfulness. You know, you're just playing with things that. You know, and really, they don't matter how well you set the table or how well you dust. You know, if you get caught up in that, you're, you're kind of a fool. It's kind of a fool's kind of Zen. But what matters is that you're getting, you're becoming more gentle. You're softening with with your behavior. So with with people, you 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 can be attentive. You can start to be attentive. How do you do that with Zen and relating to emotions, like your own emotions, other people's emotions? Because there's something about with with Zen, I think that people have this concept of, um, you know, you're just kind of non-emotional. You know, when you look at, you know, Zen monks and they you, know, you don't look emotional, you know, in some way, you know, you're wearing all black and all of that stuff and there's like non-emotions and as a therapist, I know that a lot of emotions going on underneath those robes, but the, the relationship that Zen has with emotion, how is that with just the, uh, you know, I know when I'm, when I'm meditating and I, when I was at some Zen practices, just the learning aspect of observation and observing. And the more that I was able to observe my own stuff that was coming up in my emotions and less judgment, I saw how I was able to do that with others. And I'm just wondering with your own practice and your relationship with your own emotions, how does that relate to how you are able to relate to other people's emotions? Well, it, it, yes, it's a really good insight and question and inquiry here. And I'm going to mention uh, a book that I love and 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 give a a physical example so people can really picture this. The book is called Opening the Hand of Thought by Uchiha Maroshi, who died in 1990. Japanese Zen master who I think is uh, one of the finest of the 21st century. And he talked about thoughts and emotions as opening the hand. So having an open hand as things come in so you can also have an open hand as things go out as opposed to closing your hand around it like if you had a quarter in your hand if i'm oh, my open palm right now to you prepo and I have a quarter in there if you want it and you needed it you can take that quarter but if i close my hand around it only i know i have the quarter and 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 you don't so let's say it's anger or fear or sadness, or um, terror, whatever comes up, and it all comes up, whether you're wearing a, a, the black robe or or not, whether you're wearing a basketball uniform. Human beings are human being. Practicing Zen will never make you not a human being. If it does, you're in trouble. You're in deep trouble. So it's just a practice to let those emotions be there as kind of the scenery of your life, but not close your hand around them. When you're feeling fear, to know I'm feeling fear, but I'm not the fear. I'm not just fear.
So that's the part of uh, with Zen of not being attached in some way, the, the letting go of attachment to know that we are not our emotions we're experiencing. That's not who we are. Right. And I think when I think there's that misconception too about to to not be attached doesn't mean you're not going to feel it. You know, it's just that you're going to feel it, but you're not going to be attached to the fact that you're feeling it. You're going to feel it for as long as you need to feel it. And one of the things that I've noticed in my practice with something like fear or something like anger or something like disappointment is if you can bring other feelings in, other experiences in, like calm to that emotion and witness it. One of the instructions Zen people give for Zazen or sitting meditation is that when you're sitting, it's like you are the sky and all the thoughts and emotions going by are like clouds. Sometimes it could be nice, uh, serious clouds. Sometimes it's storm clouds. Sometimes it's raging, you know? And how do you just be with it? Let it be there and recognize that thoughts and emotions are all impermanent. And that's one of the core tenets of Buddhist practice, Zen practice, is, is that all of these things are ephemeral. There is no substantive self that is there. It's all coming and going. And I'm witnessing the coming and going. A phrase that I have, um, I really like, and I just gave a Dharma talk about, and I use this phrase. It's a nautical phrase, which I love. And it's, it's something that the captain will say to the helmsman when you're going through a rocky place or a stormy place, say, steady as she goes. Just stay on that line. Stay on that course, even though the fear is coming in, the anxiety is coming in. Don't deny it. It's there. It's rocky. It's wavy. I just lost my job. I just found out my best friend is sick. It's COVID and I haven't seen my mom for a year and I'm, and I'm worried and concerned. Well, be worried and concerned and just feel it and be steady. Continue to follow the breathing and see what happens. See what the next thing that comes in beyond worry and concern. You know, just continuing to be with it, just like cleaning the, the table together, just continuing to move that rag around. One of the things about this practice is, is movement and not stagnating. Just, well, what can I do now? What can I do now? What can I do now? Without really pushing ahead of thinking what you should do instead of what you can do now. Yeah. How is the phrase, I love that, steady as you go. I mean, he, here we are, brother. I love that we have so much in common. We've talked about it so much in our past. But one aspect is 25 years of marriage. Right. So how how, how is steady as you go with, with Jonathan as a husband, like the aspect of like sticking it out one at a time, the transformation that happens in relationships? Can you speak to anything for 
for people to understand, you know, I mean, everybody knows if you're in that marriage that long, you're going to have all those clouds that you're talking about, that some of the storms and so forth. But there's something foundational if if we just really stay open to the next moment of how surprised we can continue to be. Mm. I think surprise is key. I think coming back again and again to that humility of not knowing and realizing, I can speak at least for myself, that over the years I see, thank goodness, little by little, my own arrogance wear away, kind of like water hitting the rock again and again and again. And I just start to wear down and my need to be right has really worn down over time. My need to think I'm directing things has really been worn down over time. And as you start to get out of your own way, your own agenda starts to fade. You can really see the other person in front of you and see, start to see what a magical being this is. This person's been working very hard to keep this family together, to keep the kids healthy and well, to be supportive, um, to set things where they need to go. Um, and I think if you stay with anything long enough, you can wake up to the fact that everything around you is desperately trying to take care of you. That everything around you wants to take care of you. And a big part of understanding what you have is receiving the care. Not being so busy that you can't receive the care. And I think in Zen practice, by taking care of that altar, taking care of your cushion, taking care of the floor, the altar and the floor and the cushion are taking care of you. They're taking care of your practice so you can practice, so you can sit, so you can eat. Um, I think a marriage is just this incredible commitment to give in to living in vow, which we talk about in Zen too. And of course, when you get married, you make a vow. And to realize that you are slowly but surely, a marriage is asking you to give up a lot of your beliefs and be a part of something you're not always sure where it's going. So it's like marriage is a is a practice. It's just like you know, I mean, it's a, it's an incredible practice. It's, it's the practice. Hmm. I mean, to me, marriage and and having children, it's it's the thing to wake up to. You know, if you, if you go to a monastery, you can leave. If you, if you go to a retreat, 
for five days. You can have really deep experience and, and leave. You can be a milkman during the day and go home at night. But when you're married and have kids, you're linked. Yeah. <laughs> the, the idea of no self becomes very real because now you've made children together. So you're linked. I mean, literally, physically. And if you can't begin to experience that spiritually. You're missing out. You're missing out and you're confused and you're fighting with yourself. Because when you're in a family, now you're, you're beginning to have a window to see that the self is vast. It's vast. And we're here to experience that vastness. And somehow, and I, I can't, uh, you're the expert there. It's hard for me to exactly put it in words, but somehow through the commitment of marriage, it's an opportunity to continue to awaken, continue to see where your flaws are, continue to apologize, continue to appreciate, continue to have someone so close to you who knows you so well that can call you on subtleties in behavior that no one else, because they're the person you share the sink with to brush your teeth. What a gift. It's a tremendous gift. You know, I used to, and I say this sometimes of the teachers or the, the masters that go off for years and years and years and they meditate in the caves and the hills and to find that enlightenment. There's part of me that says, you know what, man, I, I'm not going to read your book until you bring your ass down, be in a marriage and have a family and have that sense of enlightenment. Then I'll read your freaking book. You know, there's part of me that, that because that's the real practice of what we are trying to understand about about life, how to be in that connection. I, I personally think, because I, I haven't found anything in my life that has taught me to the bone of who I am and what I want to be and how I can manifest that, especially the things around kindness and compassion and tolerance. And it's a beautiful form to be able to experience all of that. So I just love that that you're balancing that and bringing that into your life as a practitioner, as a person, as a human being, and realizing that as you're speaking about Zen with this? Well, it goes both ways, Prepo, big time. It's one of the reasons why I value your practice so much and the level at which you've made a life's work of not only understanding relationships, in, in, in almost an academic point of view, but entering relationships so deeply and in such a vulnerable way that you can see and bring to others just what is so valuable here. And I think, you know, Dogen, who's a, lived from 1200 to 1253, who's the founder of my school of Zen, Soto Zen, speaks of, you know, it, you don't have to go searching here and there. Just take your own seat, that what you need is right in front of you. Mm 
And it couldn't be more true than being in a relationship. Because I, I agree with you. It'd be very, you know, much more natural sometimes and easier for me to sort of be on my own and just be in a monastery and be in the robes all the time and be quiet all the time. And, you know, um, it's very easy to think you're peaceful at that time, but it's an illusion, you know, and, and we can easily delude ourselves. We need to be interrupted. We need to be bothered. We need to slip on toys, you know. We need to come into uh, kids dyeing their hair red and blue and purple as as mine do, and <laughs> have it on the white sink. And you know, we, we we need it, you know. And we need spouses that are different from us, you know. This awakens, deepens, and uh, this is religious life. This is religious life, religious life, spiritual life. It's active. It's, it's, in the, it's in the moment of living, you know. It's being caught way out of your comfort zone and seeing now how am I responding? Now what's happening when I'm being rubbed this way by an 11-year-old, by a 14-year-old, or by a wife who knows me so well that says, man, cut the bullshit, yeah. you know, cut that Zen shit. What's, what's, what's going on? That's vital. Yeah. You know, that's you're vital. You're just looking at your bald head because you think you're hot. That, yeah. yeah. Because you got to yeah. <laughs> what's, what's, what, what's happening, you know? Right. That's vital. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. And, I, and the start of this when you said that a lot of the foundation is our relationship with our environment and our things. I think it's so important for people to understand that too, because what is that saying? How you do one thing is how you do everything. Absolutely. And so, you know, I I see a lot of people either treat things really well and, and treat their relationships and, and their partners like shit, or they're so focused on their relationship that they don't have good connection and relationship with the environment and the things around them, whether it's the, the trees, the other living things or the animate, inanimate objects in, in their home, how they take care of it. And I just love how you spoke to that. Oh, that's a wonderful practice for people to have is, is we're in relationship with all of these things all the time. Yeah, we're in a relationship with all things and, and all beings. And one of the things from Dogen in his book, Instructions to the Cook, which I love, is he talks about being in really equal relationship when he's talking to the cook of the monastery, regardless of what kind of ingredients you have, whether it's ordinary greens or it's, or it's something fancy you know, so-called fancy. You have the same, you treat it with the same amount of respect. So some people are like, wow, I got this new car. I'm really going to take care of it. I'm going to make sure it's clean, everything else. But when I go home and I see the, you know, this same book sitting on the table gathering dust, rather than take care of it and put it back in the bookshelf, I just keep seeing it every day. I'm going to walk right past it. So it is the idea of treating everything equally in your purview that is also what Zen is about in terms of waking us up to continually clean the field around us so we examine every corner. So we're not just doing one thing and not the other. That, that everything deserves attention. And that's also a vow. 
right? And sometimes that vow can feel impossible. One of the things you say in, in the morning, one of the last phrases after meditation in the Zen monastery, is we vow to save all beings. And like, how can you really save all beings, mm. you know? It seems kind of impossible that, that bodhisattva vow, but yet we say it out, literally mm. say it out loud. After an hour and a half of silence, we vow to save all beings. And those beings being people as well as um, ants and bees and, you know, the dust on a book, anything, just to, to give everything attention somehow imperceptibly does something to us. But not to, but to realize that um, we're, we're, we're never alone. And I'll tell you, man, I, being, being around you for almost 10 years now, I've learned so much of how you live your life. And you've just been a gift in so many ways of your authenticity, all the, the work of attention that you give to your life and to others. So I just want to really thank you for being in my life and for allowing me to see the perspective of how you relate. Well, I, I, I receive that very gratefully and, and give it right back. Mm. You know, just, just give it right back. The care and attention that you're bringing to your work and your life continues to inspire me and continues to open my view of what's possible for spiritual practice. It goes way beyond the monastery, goes way beyond any tradition. And you really open that up on a wide panoramic screen. And I'm super, super grateful for it. Mm. Super grateful. Mm. You're very welcome. And I'm so grateful we had that, we had this session, this rapping session. Ah, uh, me too. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Glad mm -hmm. to do it. Yeah. Get on the microphone. That's right. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we're going to have to do another one, maybe Zen in the Art of Basketball or uh, something. Let's baby. do it. Yeah. Let's do it. And baseball. And baseball. Yeah. That's what we have in common too. Yeah. All right, yeah. brother. All right. Thank you so much, man. I love you. Love you. Love mm -hmm. you. Thank you, Prepo. Yeah, babe. Relationships. Let's talk about it is a production of HeartShare Counseling and Consulting, PC, of Asheville, North Carolina. For more on licensed counselor Prepo Teplitsky, visit heartsharecounseling.com. Theme music by Adi the Monk. This content is intended for informational purposes only, is not a substitute for professional counseling and psychotherapy, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, and does not constitute medical or other professional advice. 